Genesis chapter 3. Good to see all you guys here. Um, If you've been here already this semester, you will know that um, we've been kind of taking a look at the story of Scripture this semester. So, what does the Bible kind of tell us beginning to end? Um, It's kind of been our argument here that the Bible really tells one consistent story. And, And last week we got into the sort of the setting of the story. Every, every story has a setting. Um, I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Robert McKee, and it's called Story. And it just basically talks about how stories work. So how books, how plays, how movies kind of are put together to tell stories. So I've been kind of reading that, and, and McKee says that every story has a setting. And the biblical story definitely has that. Um, we looked at it last week, Genesis 1 and 2, a really good God creates a good world, and he creates people in his image. He cares for these people and he gives them a job to do to um, kind of extend his rule and his reign throughout all the world. And we kind of checked that out last week. And um, McKee's book also says that every story has what he calls a moment of conflict or an inciting incident. Okay? The biblical story definitely has that. Um, something happens that, that basically causes it all to go wrong. And uh, from then on, the rest of the story is about trying to respond to that thing. Um, so, Genesis 3, that's where we are. We're going to read this together before we take a look at it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent has deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall... Be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that in this moment that you would do what only you can do. God, by the power of your spirit, would you just open our eyes to the truths of your word. And Lord, we do pray that you be our teacher. Um, Lord, in your kindness and your mercy that... You would take these words that I've prepared and that you'd make them your very words to us, Lord, and for us tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is a sort of a crazy story. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around the kind of almost mythical, cosmic, epic, tragic, terrible things happening in this text. Um, and we're just going to walk through this this story, just kind of get the outline of what hap- actually happens in the story. And then we're going to discuss a couple just questions that I think this story raises for the rest of the Bible. And a couple like tensions that I think it, it kind of builds in us. So some tensions and questions that it sort of leads us to ask or to struggle with as we look to the rest of the biblical story. Um, so let's, let's take a look at just how the story breaks down. It kind of breaks down into three episodes or sections. I don't know if you kind of picked up on that. Um, in verses 1 to 7 at the beginning here, um, there's the temptation scene. Eve talks with this serpent. Um, then you have God's discovery and confrontation of the people. That's kind of verses 8 to, to 13. And then in verses 14 to 24, you kind of have these curses that are pronounced by God. It's sort of the aftermath of the, of the whole thing. Um, so, so beginning in verse 1, you know, we have some circumstantial information. This serpent was more crafty than any of, the, any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Um, so there's a serpent, and he shows up in this garden, this good world that God had created, his, his perfect created place. Um, chapters 1 and 2, um, there's a serpent here. And, and look at verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, The man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Um, the word naked in Hebrew sounds a lot like this word crafty. We hear this serpent is crafty. So we hear that, that the people in verse 25 were naked and unashamed. Just kind of a picture of, of them being sort of um, free and, and in harmony with God and with one another. But then we hear that this serpent is somehow crafty. So he's going to try to exploit and, and come kind of after that sense of innocence and purity and, and like unashamedness, if that's, if that's a word. Um, that's exactly what the serpent's going to try to attack. He, he's crafty. He's sneaky. Um, but it's really important to see in verse 1 that the Lord God made him. Um, this is kind of mysterious. 
But God rules over this serpent somehow. Um, God has made him, so that means he must rule over him. And it's mysterious how this works out. We'll, we'll get to that more in a second. But then there's this conversation that, that comes. And in sort of Old Testament stories and Old Testament narrative, a lot of, a lot of the tension occurs sort of in the dialogue between characters. And, and that's definitely what we have happening here. Um, there's, there's a conversation. Um, the serpent asks the woman a question. Did, did God actually say that you can't eat from any of the trees? Um, we looked at how in chapter 1 of Genesis, the word of God is the creative power by which the world is established and made. And in this conversation, the serpent is having a conversation about um, the word of God. Somehow attacking the word of God. Somehow bringing the word of God into question. Um, that's kind of an important feature happening in this story. Um, everything had come into existence, we found, by the word of God. But now that very creative, powerful, redemptive word is going to be kind of... Um, attacked by the serpent. In verses 2 and 3, the woman responds. And she says, no, 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 we actually can eat of the trees, but we can't eat or touch the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Um, We find out in chapter 2 that this tree, there's a tree in the middle, another mysterious kind of mythical thing, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and, And we don't know the details, but we know that the Lord God did not want His people to attain some sort of level of understanding and knowledge. Um, That, that, for them to live under his rule and his reign, they needed to be without this kind of exposure. And it's hard to kind of understand sort of the mystery of this story. Um, but, but Eve reports, right, no, they can eat of any tree. They're just not supposed to eat of that tree. And, and a lot of scholars point out that she even adds something to the command. Um, in, in chapter 2, we, we hear they can't eat. But she also says, and we're not also not allowed to touch it. Um, so we've got that going on. Maybe Eve's not too sure about exactly what God's word and his command was. But in verse 4, we see that the serpent becomes more bold, right? Um, Take a look at verse 4. You will not surely die, because God knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. The idea here is that God's somehow holding you back, um, that, that you can be so much more. He wants glory maybe for himself. He doesn't want to share that with you. He's holding you back. He's holding you down. Something to the effect of God's words untrue. His character can't be trusted here. He's not really good to you. He's holding something back from you that you're supposed to have. It's kind of the the temptation. That's That's the logic that the serpent's kind of working here with the woman. You know, God's somehow jealous. He doesn't want to share his glory with you, which is kind of true to a certain extent. God's glory belongs to him alone, but the woman is tempted with the idea of of maybe potentially being like God in some way, achieving some sort of status that God um, deserves to have alone. And and so so this is all happening. And and then we hear in in verse 6 that that it just happens really, really quickly. Um, She saw that it was good. Um, She saw that it looked good for food. She saw it looked good to the eyes. And she saw that it really had the chance to give her this level of wisdom and knowledge. So this dialogue, this tense dialogue just gives way to a really quick report. The, the woman, she takes and she eats it and she gives it to her husband and he eats. So just this quick action of just she took it, she ate it, she gave it, he ate it. Um, she took it, she ate it, she gave it. He ate it just this quickly, like the whole fabric of the entire universe becomes broken and fractured in this just quick action of taking a piece of fruit and eating it and giving it just like that. Um, It's just these quick verbs 
just so much damage. And that's the way sin works in our lives, right? A lot of times there's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of tension. But, but when we kind of give in to sin, sometimes it happens so fast and causes so much, so much damage. And the level to which this kind of ruined things in verse 6 is just impossible to explain and, and overstate. In, in verse 7, it's almost ironic and it's almost comical. Look at verse 7. They'd been promised that somehow their eyes would be opened to some kind of level of status and knowledge. But instead, their eyes were opened and they realized that they're naked and they become ashamed and they hide from each other and they're embarrassed. So instead of being enlightened somehow, they ended up just getting embarrassed. Um, in verse 25 of chapter 2, they were, they were naked, they were unashamed, a picture of just kind of freedom and joy and harmony. But now they're, they're naked and they're ashamed. It's been a complete reversal here. And they, and they end up hiding from God and they hide from each other. And, and I don't know about you guys, but that's how temptation often works in my life too. Like sometimes I believe the promises of sin. I believe that somehow casting God's kingship, you know, off of me. Like I, I don't want to live under his rule. And, and I think that somehow the promise of sin or the promise of being somehow independent of God's rule. Um, mistrusting God's goodness and his authority over me. I, I sometimes tend to believe that that will somehow offer me something or give me something. But, but mostly I end up just ashamed and wanting to hide from God and hide from other people. Um, this, is like the, this is like the deceptive nature of sin. It promises this kind of payoff, but the payoff, um, yeah, in, in the short run, it's actually sometimes pretty good, but the payoff in the long run ends up shameful and embarrassing and we want to hide. Um, it's just kind of the nature of how sin works. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen like little kids when they get in trouble and they try to hide from their parents. Have you ever seen that? I remember being a kid and doing things wrong, and my parents would like call my name or start to, to, you know, come to talk to me or whatever, and I would try to hide from them. Um, or I've seen like mothers on a playground, like you know, start to get on to their little like two-year-old, and the two-year-old tries to run away. You know, it, it's just kind of how we react to sin. We wanna we wanna hide, but it's like where are we gonna go, right? So in this moment, the whole thing's broken. I mean, literally the entire foundation of God's good world is broken and fractured here. Evil, shame, sin, fear, distrust, humiliation, insecurity, embarrassment, broken relationships, alienation comes rushing into our world. These things that we just assume are part of our world. There was a time when those things weren't, but here they, they just enter into our world, become the really foundation of the world we live in. I mean, imagine a world without some of these things. It's hard to imagine because the ripple effects of this decision we feel today. And then kind of just moving quickly through the rest of the story. In verses 8 to 13, God comes looking for these people. Um, they, and they, they want to shift the blame. The man says that it's a woman that, that it's her fault. You, God, you gave me this woman. It, it's her fault. So he blames the woman as well as blaming God. Um, the woman says that she was tricked, and that's really interesting. The Bible tells us that Eve was tricked. She was deceived. But the man apparently just wasn't very interested in living under the kingship of God. So he just disobeyed just because he maybe wanted to, kind of straight up, not out of deception. And I can relate with that. I, I, I'm that way a lot. Um, in verses 14 to 19, God explains the extent of this damage. And, and this is these curses that he pronounces. And, and again, they're mysterious. 
Verses 14 and 15, the serpent is cursed. Um, In verse 16, um, one of the main creative purposes of the woman, the ability to to bear children, will be painful. Um, Mandy and I are going to find out about that in like four or five weeks. Um, The dang snake. Anyway, um, just, and and we hear this line that, that there's, the woman will desire be for the husband, and he shall rule over her. Just somehow, there's a picture just at the very fabric of this basic relationship—the relationship between this husband and wife, who were formerly ideal partners. Somehow, there's a tension between them and their their very relationship. There's a conflict and tension, kind of inherent. And, and you guys talk to, talk to married people. Um, when you try to cultivate a loving relationship with your spouse, it's like something's at work against you sometimes. Um, it's like you're fighting an uphill battle to be at one with your spouse. And, and it's because this something, was, something happened in this chapter that, that caused a fracture in that relationship. In, in verses 17 to 19, the man, one of his creative purposes is to be able to tend the ground and work the ground and, 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 and have dominion over the ground like we talked about last week. To, to use the land and the world to make things and to, and to provide for himself. We hear that that's cursed. Um, the things that he is intended to have dominion over will be working against him. There will be a painful, intense struggle to acquire food. The, I mean, the actual, like, fertile earth, lush, fertile earth that God had created um, was now going to yield thorns and thistles. Um, it's like the earth itself broke, too. And, and death enters the picture. The man who had been created from the dust, God breathes into him. Now he's going to go back to the dust. Um, so death enters the picture. Um, and kind of to round out the story, God drives them out of the place. Um, to use John Milton's phrase, the paradise is lost. Um, it's really, really tragic. And it's a really hard fall. Um, and that's kind of the, the nature of the story. You guys have heard this a thousand times before, probably. But I, I want to just, just to kind of, our, our last little section tonight, I just want to highlight a couple questions that I think this story kind of raises. And, um, some tensions that it sort of raised in us. And, and I've kind of got them broken down into sort of three questions slash tensions. Or they're really like sets of questions. So there's a lot in here. Um, but, but the first one. Um, I think there's just a question that this story raises that the rest of the biblical story is going to try to address. And here it is. Um, where did this serpent snake come from? Like how did he end up in God's good world? And, and why does he want to use his craftiness, his cunningness in this kind of way to ruin everything? Um, why did God make him? Um, is God responsible for evil when it happens? I mean, this, this force that's opposed to him in the world that we know is evil, you know, is God going to just hand over the world to evil? Um, what will happen to this good, good, beautiful world that he's created? I mean, those are just some tensions and questions I think this raises. And, and here's the thing. The Bible doesn't necessarily tell us answers to those questions as clearly as we'd like. Um, I mean, this serpent shows up without explanation. And we piece it together later that, that, that this serpent is associated with the work of what the Old Testament will refer to as the Satan, the, the accuser, the adversary. Um, but, but what we do know is that God rules over this serpent somehow. He's created and he's made him, so he somehow permits his activity. And the rest of the biblical story will tell us that, that God's no less glorious Somehow, and this is mysterious, and it, and it requires a category in our thinking that is so hard to get, but that God is somehow is not less glorious um, or less good because He's permitted or allowed this serpent to do His work in our world. 
and that's a, that's a hard tension. Um, but, but let's just suffice it to say that there's a real, live, personal force thing opposed to the things of God in our world. Um, a book I really like a lot. It's called No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy. And um, it tells the story of this, this sheriff named Ed Tom. Um, he's this Texas sheriff, and he's encountering terrible things on the border between Texas and Mexico. And he, he talks about when he was a young man, he didn't really believe in evil. He thought it was just kind of old-fashioned believe in evil. But now that he's become an old guy, he realized that there's some things you can't explain any other way. And I think that's just true. There's certain things we can't explain other than the fact that there's a real live evil that's at work in our world. And the Bible acknowledges that our world and that humanity and that creation to a certain extent is caught in the sway of this opposition to God. Um, that evil has a certain power in our world and, and it is what it is. And the rest of the Bible's story is going to begin addressing that. Okay, a second question or attention is, is what's, what's the essence of sin? Um, this is the moment in which we say that in the biblical story, sin enters the world. Well, what is sin? Um, what's the essence of sin? And it's really interesting because the Bible has this kind of sometimes annoying, frustrating habit that it doesn't really define things for us clearly and neatly. I don't know if you've ever noticed that about reading your Bible. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not just like a, a, like a bunch of bold vocabulary terms with clear definitions. Instead, it's a really long, crazy book. Um, so the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us everything to define sin for us. What the Bible tends to do is give us stories. Okay? Instead of saying sin is this. Now, there are places in the Bible where it does come close to saying that and doing that. There's a place in First John where it says that. Um, but the Bible will also give us stories to help us kind of think through. Well, what does this look like? Okay, what does sin actually look like in our lives? The Bible won't allow a concept like sin to kind of stay abstract, but it'll try to make it concrete by showing us a story and saying, well, it's like this. It, it, it kind of looks like this. And, that, and it kind of helps us kind of get our minds around what's, what's going on. Um, and in Genesis 3 through 11, this part of the biblical story, um, there's four different stories actually that tell us about sin and help us get our minds around it. The one we just read. Um, and, and here, if, if we could kind of get our minds around what sin looks like here, it has something to do with kind of deciding we're not interested in God's authority over us and God's kingship over us. I can relate with that. It has something to do with the fact that we would prefer sort of glory and exaltation for ourselves rather than giving that to God. And I can relate with that. Um, it, it involves just a clear disobedience of God's command here. And I can relate with that. It has to do with distrusting or mistrusting God's goodness. Um, it has to do with distorting His Word. So it looks like all those things in this story. In Genesis 4, it's going to involve a jealousy and an envy between a brother and a brother that, that results in a brother murdering a brother. Um, in Genesis 6, it's sin looks like some strange perver sexual perversion between angelic beings and humankind that results with God saying that he's sorry he even made the world to begin with and that the every thought of humankind was only evil continually find out in, in chapter 6 of Genesis in, in Genesis 11 we see that involves sort of a pride and a disobedience and a rebellion against God a group of people get together they're going to build themselves a really high tower in order to make a name for themselves kind of directly disobeying God's command for them to go out and fill the earth and, it's, and we learned that the more human beings unite and get together, the more potential for evil is actually kind of available to them. So God must confuse their languages so they can't be united. 
some, some just other ways that the Bible describes sin. Um, it talks about that it's a burden that, that's borne by us. Sin's a burden that needs to be somehow let go of or released. The Bible talks about sin as a stain or a mark or a blemish that needs cleansing. Um, that it's missing the mark. It's failing to measure up to a standard. That it's a transgression. The idea of deliberately crossing a boundary. Um, it's straying off the path. It's shame. It's guilt. All, all this is kind of part of the picture of sin in the Bible. And let's just suffice it to say that sin and evil are a pretty complicated phenomenon in the Bible. And they're complicated in our lives too, right? I mean, we are both victims of sin. But we're also willing participants in sin at the same time. Um, we're co-conspirators in this kind of opposition to God. But yet we're, in, we're like in chains and shackled to it too. It's a weird sort of dynamic. Sin and evil are complicated things in the biblical story. And then, and then the third kind of set of questions and intentions. And this is the way we'll end tonight. And this is where I think we see the hope. Um, and um, really all our hope. And the question is just really, well, well who's going to do something about this? And how's he going to do it? What will happen to make this thing right again? Um, in, in this book I was just telling you guys about called Story, you know, every, every story has a setting. And then he says every story has an inciting incident. And the way he defines an inciting incident is it's a moment in which the harmony and sort of the goodness of the setting um, becomes radically altered. Okay, that's what happens in the story. But then... It's the thing that the main character of the story must react to. And, that, and, the, and God's the main character of the biblical story. And to this incident, he decides he's going to react. And, I mean, praise God, he, he reacts. He does something. Um, the good God of Genesis 1 and 2, the Redeemer God, decides he's going to be on the move. Throughout the rest of the biblical story, we're going to learn how exactly he's going to go about doing this. And it's often unexpected. And it's not the way we would have done it. Um, but he's on the move to start making these things right. He's going to reassert his rule and reign. He will win back his people. He'll even create a new heavens and a new earth one day to, to undo this curse like in its totality. Um, I mean, even look at this text, Genesis 3. I want you to see how he's doing it already. Um, look, at, look at verse 9. Um, the people are, are ashamed and embarrassed and they're hiding in the trees. And it's God who goes after them. It's God who comes looking for them in the trees as they're ashamed and broken. Um, he, he's the one who's on the move after them. And, and you and I are here tonight because to some degree or another, God came for us. He came looking for us. Um, he came calling to us. We've heard his voice. He's, he's come after us. He's the one who makes the initiative to pursue the people who are ashamed and hiding. And look at verse 15. Um, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is that one day a descendant from this woman will, will one day crush this serpent in his activity. And theologians have referred to this as the first gospel. Um, the first pronouncement of the good news of the gospel. That someone's going to come and deal with this evil sin serpent thing. Um, and he's going to deal with it once and for all. And, and we'll have to kind of let the rest of the story play out to find out who that's going to be. Um, I'll give you a hint. His name starts with a J. Um, and he's going to do something about it. Some of you guys know who it is. Um, spo- spoiler alert. 
Verse 21. Um, look at verse 21. God, in His compassion and in His kindness, He clothes the people. He covers their shame. And He'll go to even greater lengths in the rest of the story to cover the shame of His people. Um, this, this scholar that I really like a lot just pointed out a, a pretty amazing truth. Um, you know, the woman and the man together ruin the world just so, so quickly. They take and they eat. And the woman gives. So they take and they eat and they give. And just that quickly, the take and the eat and the give, the world is broken. But God himself will take on a human body and he will um, experience death and shame on himself before the words of take and eat become words of salvation and hope and not words of shame and embarrassment and humiliation and sin. Um, There's a moment when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he he takes bread and and there's eating and there's giving. And he says that this bread and this wine is my body and my blood because he's on his way to the cross to defeat sin and death and evil. Just, Just once and for all. And, it, and it's just almost unexplainable. Um, but for some reason, we learned that the God of the Bible really loves sinners. And He really wants to redeem them. And He really wants to rescue them. And He really wants to reassert His rule and His reign over them. And He really wants to be in relationship with them. And He really wants to make the whole thing right again. The God of the Bible loves sinners. And the logic of Romans 5 that Julia read at the beginning says that basically as bad as one man Adam messed it up, how much more will one man Jesus make it all right again? And and that just happens to be all our hope. um, That Christ would deal with what happened in this story. So, I don't know where you are tonight exactly. I don't know how you're maybe just kind of rebelling against God's kingship over you. We all do it in our own particular ways. I don't know how you're preferring your glory over His. We all do it in our own particular ways. I don't know how you're disobeying Him, how you're distrusting Him, how you are struggling to trust in His goodness. Um, but if that's you, you're in the right story, okay? And, and you've come to the right kind of guy. Um, so we're going to take a second we're going to pray. And um, after I pray, we're going to just give a couple minutes of just silent time to just reflect and let this kind of sink in and maybe ask questions of like, Lord, how am I, how is this story my story? Um, How am I rebelling and and hiding from you even? Separated and alienated from others? And how do I need you to come in and make it all right again? Um, And this is something we're going to do every week. Just create a couple minutes of just silent reflection time um, before we sing our last song. And and as we sing our last song, if um, any of you guys would would want someone to pray for you, um, Suzanne and Mandy and I will be available just sort of in the back. If we could pray for you about anything... Um, We want to do that, so um, let's pray. Lord, Lord, we we uh, there's so often we just don't want your kingship over us, God. Lord, and and we are not interested in your rule and your reign over us. We 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 disobey you and we don't trust you. And Lord, we're deceived and we're tricked by sin and. God, um, we expected to pay off something, and it, and it leaves us disappointed and hiding and naked and ashamed. And Lord, so that's why we need you. And God, we do pray that 
you'd be shaping us into people who deal with this. Um, Lord, tonight I pray that we would repent. Lord, tonight I pray that we would come out of the trees. Um, Lord, tonight I pray that we would respond to your pursuit and your initiation over us, God. We look forward to when you will conquer evil and death. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that it has um, just the ability to do something in us. So right now, as we just silently reflect, God, would you just do your work in our hearts, God? That's what we ask, and that's what we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who crushed the serpent's head. We pray this in his name. Amen.